It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. Today's episode is a little different because it's dealing with law, but it's also adding another passion of mine that I haven't shared with my listeners, and that's history. Um, I was a history major at Emory University, and I focused on civil rights history, um, Being from South Carolina and going to school in Atlanta, there was a wealth of information, including Congressman John Lewis, at that point, City Councilman John Lewis, coming to my class and spending three hours telling us the stories of Selma. And I have another major player in the story of the civil rights movement as my guest today. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Terrence Roberts. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So you are one of the nine students in 1957 known as the Little Rock Nine. Indeed so. And a lot of my listeners may not know what happened in 1957, so I wanted to start there. Um, Well, sure. You know, it's it's an interesting thing from my point of view because it's as if all those things happened yesterday. They're that present with me. But I grew up in Little Rock. I was born there and was shocked and surprised to find out that we in Little Rock were operating under a very strange ruling from the Supreme Court in 1896, Plessy v. Ferguson. Although Plessy didn't start the craziness, it was sort of an underscoring of what had been going on for a long time before that. But I think it was designed to create for all of us an awareness that this was going to be how we would live our lives. And the doctrine was separate but equal. All of that based on racial group membership. So whatever racial group you happen to be a member of, that dictated your place. And for me, my place was very, very limited, extremely circumscribed, because uh, I was assigned to, at that time, the Negro race. That has since evolved into something else. But in any case, in 1957, it was three years post the Brown decision, which had been rendered in 1954. Right. Brown versus Board of Education. Exactly. See, the Brown decision literally turned Plessy on its head. It was a 180-degree switch. Plessy said, it's constitutional to discriminate. Brown said, no, it's not. It's not constitutional to discriminate. Now, the areas of interest, Plessy was in transportation, Brown was education, but the ruling had impact for every phase of life. And not everyone was ready for that change. No, no, no one was And that's was ready an understatement, obviously. Mm-hmm. Obviously. But the Little Rock School Board decided, in the wake of Brown, to do something with that. They determined that they would institute a program of desegregation, They immediately met opposition from the townspeople. Little Rock folk were not ready for that. They proposed several plans. Eventually, they were able to sort of agree, 
that they would start with one high school, Central High, previously dedicated only to educating white students, and grades 10, 11, and 12. Now, there were two schools where black kids went, one high school, one middle school. Representatives came from the school board to each one of those two institutions and posed the questions, if we do this experiment in desegregation, how many of you would volunteer to be involved? About 150 hands went up. And we all went home that day and explained to our parents we had volunteered for this experiment in desegregation. And as you might well expect, there was some opposition from parents. I would imagine just grave, first of all, just concern for their children and their well-being. Oh, yes, yes. Fear that we'd be killed. Fear that they would lose jobs. Fear that all kinds of things would happen. So our numbers dwindled from 150 to 10. Wow. For a very brief moment in time, we were the Little Rock 10. That didn't last long either, because the father of the 10th child received a telephone call from his employer with this very terse message, if you continue in this madness, you may as well not come back to work. So he pulled his child out, and that left nine. Those nine parents, or those nine sets of parents, however, were stalwart. They decided, no, we're in this. We're going to stay. Now, let's talk about that, your parents and you. I mean, were you, when, who was on board first, or was it a collaborative decision between you and your parents that you were going to be a part of this? I volunteered at school. Okay. So I, and they I, had no idea I you were doing that. None of, none of us, I mean, none of the parents knew. Okay. I came home and presented my case. They listened and immediately said, we will support your decision 100%. And then they gave me some very sage advice. I didn't realize how important it was. If you are up there and it's too rough and you want to quit, we will support your decision to quit 100%. That made so much sense to me. Well, and it's important as a young person to know that your parents have your back whatever you decide, especially with something so serious. I think that was the main point, although I must say I didn't completely understand it immediately. But later on, a few weeks into the craziness at Central, I thought, yes, I, I need that out if I need to leave here. And, and I thought I was going to leave. I mean, I wanted to quit almost from the beginning, once I figured out how dangerous it was. So you, this decision is made. How long from, what kind of preparation was made to get you and the others ready to go into this high school? Well, that, of course, is a very optimistic question. Would that it were possible for us to have had some preparation? There were a few things that went on. Daisy Bates was the state president for the NAACP. She, of course, had been always and forever as I knew her, an activist pushing for change. And she wasn't so much about the task of preparation, but about simply explaining to us what we might encounter. It was up to us to figure out a way to deal with it. Although, two men who had worked with Dr. Martin Luther King, Jim Lawson and Glenn Smiley, came to town. And those two men literally had been instrumental in helping Dr. King refine his own notions about nonviolence. They were skeptical because, one, they didn't have enough time to really teach us much. Eventually, they decided that if we were able to say with some clarity that we loved our enemy, you see, and there's a lot of assumptions in that very statement. Mm -hmm. You know, the assumption of enemies and assumption that we know about love, et cetera, et cetera. But we all said yes. We love our enemies. And to the degree that we understood any of that, right. it was true. Because how old were you with this? 
I was 15. Right. You know, at 15, what do you know? Very little. When you, in retrospect, at the time, you think you know a little bit more. But I think still. that's probably the truth of the matter. <laughs> so, so what was it? What if you can give it, uh, the historical background at the actual timing of starting school and and what was the background before we get to your wow. first day? You know, school was to start in September, and the lead up to that was filled with rhetoric on the airwaves the newspapers, uh, people on the streets. People were talking about this in violent terms, in many cases, because there were obviously a group of people who were totally and utterly, what do you call it, (laughs) opposed to this whole thing. And there were a few who were supportive, but they were fearful. There was great fear. So we might say that between the time that the school board decided to do this and before school opened, Fear had a chance to grow and fill that town. There was so much tension. In the midst of all of this, believe it or not, my parents and I didn't really talk about it much. They figured we've made a decision, not much else to do. We'll just see what happens. So not much preparation. Was anybody formally preparing you in any no, way no, to not how at to all. deal with the environment that you were walking Because into? you know why? No one knew. See, there was this assumption that Arkansas, and Little Rock particularly, was part of, quote, the Upper South, that we were not in the same league as Mississippi and Alabama, and that things might go smoother. That was the assumption. I don't know whether there was any factual basis for that or not. Turns out there wasn't. Turns out Little Rock was just as bad as Selma. So you get closer to the first day of school. What happens on that first day? If you can, from the governor, leaving your house. The governor is very active. The night before school is to open, he's on television, assuring the people that everything's under control. He's called out the National Guard, and they are there to keep the peace. Now, I was fairly naive at that point. I actually believed the man. I thought, okay, at least he's going to try and keep the peace, which means I may not be in as much danger as I imagine. But once all nine of us got there, we discover that the troops are not there to keep the peace. Their job is to keep us out, to bar our entrance. Wow. That's a shock, and we don't know what to do. We're all forced to go home because they won't let us on campus. And when you say they don't, can you paint that scene of, you know, who's out there, who's not letting you walk on? Well, the school is a massive school. It's a very large building. takes up two full city blocks. Guards were shoulder to shoulder, ringed around that school, a human fence. Armed. Armed. Carbons on their shoulders. Oh, they, they look menacing. Batons in their hands. In fact, I tried to walk through. I saw a group of white kids streaming through a break in the line. I thought, oh, okay, here's a designated entrance. No one had told me, but I sort of figured it out, right? But when I got there, they closed ranks. I looked to my left, and there's another opening, and white kids are now streaming through there. And again, in my naivete, I'm thinking, oh, a shifting point of entry. No doubt some security reasons. So I go over there, and same thing happens. They close ranks when I get there. At that point, I know the truth. Okay, so you're not letting me in. Now, my dilemma is, how do I escape this mob? Because along with the soldiers... There were hundreds of people out there yelling and screaming. I recall one thing particularly. There were grandparents holding their grandkids' hands in the mob, yelling and screaming. 
So I saw that as sort of a transfer of information, if you will. That was a very startling thing. So how do you get out of there that day? Or who makes the decision that that's walked, not the day I, to go I had in? walked up by myself, and I didn't live that far away. So I began to walk home. Now, interestingly enough, as I started my walk home, an older white man began to chase me or ran after me. And I thought he was coming with some ill intent in mind, but he waved that off. He said, nope, I'm a friend. And we had a conversation. He assured me that not every single white person in Little Rock wanted to kill us. And he was among that group. So I walked home. My dad, in the meantime, had walked up to meet me. So the two of us made our way home. Now, the need is to figure out what's going on. So we contact Daisy Bates and other people who are in leadership positions. And they say, well, the NAACP is having legal representatives for you. And we wound up with Thurgood Marshall and Wiley Branton as our two attorneys. Some very good attorneys. Very good. And Thurgood very Marshall, good. eventually a, a U.S. Supreme Court justice. So you had a great legal mind. These two attached. men were amazing. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I quickly found out about their history. They'd been at this for so many years already. So they were very skilled and very able. After three weeks, we were able to get into school, although compromise had been made. The president and the governor were at odds with each other. Finally, president Eisenhower, Eisenhower at the time. Right. Oh. Eisenhower and Faubus, the governor, they'd finally come to some compromise. Well, it wasn't really, in truth, a compromise. It was a political ploy. What Faubus said to Eisenhower was, okay, you can remove the National Guard and take those black kids into school, but I'm washing my hands of it. It's on you. And so the Little Rock police were assigned as our protectors. Now, if you know anything about the relationship between white Southern policemen and black people, you will most certainly wonder about our sanity. Or safety. Or, and safety. And it turns out we were in great trouble, great peril, because many of the law enforcement officers simply joined the mob that morning. So they added manpower and firepower, and they broke through the lines of the policemen who were left. They were literally coming into the school. There was some talk of having to sacrifice one of the nine of us so that eight could get away. Gene Smith, who was the assistant police chief, said, no, we're going to get all nine out. So police cars came into an underground basement garage at the school, and we got into these cars, and that's the only way we were able to make it because we didn't have to exit the building to even get to the car. And the instructions to the drivers, accelerate only. Don't even think about using the brake. And we were able to get out of there. It was that dangerous? Well, that it was. It was extremely dangerous that day. That's probably the most danger we'd been in prior to getting into the school and experiencing even more <laughs> dangerous episodes. So what happens next? I mean, because there's this whole, you know, it, it had been ordered. It was, you know, the rule of law would have been that you absolutely would be able to go into that school. Well, you're right about the rule of law because uh, Judge Ronald Davies, who had been brought in from North Dakota, because none of the Southern judges would handle the case. They were always gone fishing when you tried to catch up with them. But Ronald Davies came in, and his rulings were very quick. And he said, nope, we followed the law. We followed the law. Eisenhower finally got the message. So he sent in the 101st Airborne Division to take us to school. The military. Big military. I mean, these guys were so well-armed. And I felt good because I thought, Certainly this has to happen. 
It will happen because they have guns, right? They'll kill people if they need to. That was my thinking. Well, turns out that they didn't have any bullets. They had guns, but no ammo. Nobody knew this, so the threat worked. But at any rate, they came in. So this is three weeks since school started. We were out of school for that entire period. But when the troops came, they took us to school. Two troopers assigned to each one of the nine of us would accompany us from class to class. They could not enter the classroom, but they made certain that we could walk the halls in relative safety. I say relative because even with the troops there, these kids were emboldened enough to do things, even though the troops were there. They didn't fear any retaliation. So that's the way it was throughout the school year. How were you able to do your studies and get through each day in the classroom? Even once you're in the building, I'm assuming that it's not like you all of a sudden got love from your fellow classmates. No, no, indeed. In fact, it was war. It literally was war. The kids were so opposed, and they were unwilling to compromise. Some of them actually left school. They walked out, vowing never to come back. Those who remained decided they were going to make sure we were uncomfortable enough so that we would leave voluntarily, or if not, as they told us repeatedly every day, we will kill you and drag you out. And this is even with the army there. So that meant we were learning how to survive. So one thing we learned that school year was how to survive life in hostile enemy territory, along with the schoolwork. But the, the different thing was all of us were good students and we were not phased by all this craziness going on around us. We could still do our studies and, and do well. So the teachers did the classes that you took, you were able to do well. In other words, at least individual teachers would realize that you were talented students. Some of the teachers Dedicated actually, students. Yes, yeah, some did. Uh, some did not. Some were just totally opposed to this whole business. I had one... English teacher who surprised me one day. I knew in advance what might happen because when I saw her face, I thought to myself, Terry Roberts, you will receive your first F ever in a class because that woman's face had F written all over it. <laughs> but she surprised me one day. She said, why don't you go back to your own school? Why, do you, why are you here at our school? Why don't you go back to your own school? I was dumbfounded. And I remember thinking that this woman has some sort of a mental health problem because she's intuitively thinking she has ownership of public schools and she's implying that somehow I do too. And I thought, wow, that makes no sense. But I just turned and walked away. She didn't bother me anymore, but I assumed that she was in total opposition. She wasn't typical. Well, there were teachers there who actually felt we should have a chance. Even though they didn't say it, you could see it. Their faces were different. Right. You could divide up that whole group of teachers and place them along a continuum. You'd have a fairly large contingent at one end of, I would say, the vile hatred end. But there were a few at the other end. And then they were all scattered along there. And that's true of the administration as well as the student body, too. But there were enough of these vocal, outspoken oppositionists, I would call them, that they carried the day. In fact... Many of the students who might have befriended us were hesitant because the word was out, if you befriend the black students, we will kill you too. Very few students were willing to brave that one, although some did. And that's an important thing to remember. 
So as things go on and you're in school, things start to shift again, I think, if you can't where you're back out of school again. Summer comes. Summer. One of our group has graduated, and one of our group actually got kicked out. So we lost one student through expulsion, and one of our group simply graduated. So that left seven of us eligible to return. And we were publicly stating, yes, we will be back for round two. The governor, of course, is not happy to hear that. He then begins to think about what he can do, and he comes up with a plan. He decides he will just close every high school in Little Rock. Now, we don't know for how long. It was indeterminate. But since I only had one year remaining, I actually left town. I moved to L.A. to live with relatives, convinced my entire family to follow me. So by December of 58, we had all relocated. We had become Californians. Two of the kids who had been in 10th grade, however, came back later because the schools were only closed for one year. Only one year. I mean, that, one year. that, you know, it's just so shocking, especially in this world now where, you know, we have snow days and we're panic stricken where a child missed two, three, four days of school. That literally the education at that high school was interrupted for a full year exactly, because people yeah. could not follow a court order and accept the change and determine that what's, everybody should have an equal right to education. Right. It is It is surprising. And you would think in a country that purports to uphold the value of education, that never should such a thing happen. But Little Rock was not the most egregious example of that because in Prince Edward County, Virginia, schools were closed, and not just high schools, elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools, closed for four years consecutively. Now, that's extreme when you think about it because it robs the entire community of the opportunity to be educated. And what happens? Who knows? I've actually talked to some of the adults now who were in that situation in Prince Edward County, and they're bitter because many of them never got back into formal education. They had to settle for, you know, uh, menial jobs and just lost the ambition, lost the desire. Your family completely left Arkansas, or did they come back at some point and you no, go back? No, no. In point? fact, my dad's family, his mom and siblings, were in Little Rock earlier, but in the early 40s, most of them migrated to Los Angeles. My dad was literally the only one of that group to stay in Little Rock. I don't know why, but uh, at this point, because of the school's closure, that was the impetus. So we pulled stakes and moved to L.A. and simply just re-figured our family and what we were doing. My mom changed professions. My dad did too. And we became Californians. When you're in school and you have a book, it's a wonderful book. I'll go ahead and plug it now, The Lessons from Little Rock. Um, and it tells in more great detail more about this story. But one of the things that struck me was the th in the gym. Oh, yes. Can you share... Some of those experiences. Well, you know, that, that was a hard one. That was even a hard one to write about. But because the troops were not allowed to come with us into classes or the gym or the cafeteria or the auditorium, we were often very vulnerable. And I was the only one in my gym class, only black kid. In fact, you might think of us that year as the Little Rock won nine times. 
because all of our class schedules were unique and different. Classes were scheduled based on homeroom assignments. Homeroom assignments were done alphabetically. So in our groups of seniors, juniors, sophomores, one senior, five juniors, three sophomores. And each one of those three groups, we were assigned homerooms alphabetically, and none of our names were similar. So we didn't see each other much during the day. So there I am in this PE class. And of course, I'm catching hell from everywhere. And there's a lot of excuses on the part of these kids because they say, you should have seen the ball coming or you should have known it was your turn or whatever. And the coach one day decided, okay, got to do something about this. He didn't consult me, but he started talking to the group as a whole, saying he was upset because these kids were sneaking up behind me and doing these things. And he saw them as cowards. And he said, no, if you want to be real men, you can't do that. You've got to challenge Roberts. He calls by last name. He got challenged Roberts to the mat, oh, which was something that he and I had not talked about. I was not happy to hear that. But these kids were. They all lined up. And the first kid in line was one of my RST groups. And I say that because alphabetic assignments meant that we in the RST group had most of our classes together. His last name was Tully. So Tully was my <laughs> self-chosen antagonist. He had great delight, took great delight in causing me great harm. So he was first in line. So I'm saying to myself, Tully wants to kill me. And literally at that point, as a 15-year-old kid, I'm standing there thinking, I'm going to die. But I thought, okay. And I looked at Tully. And I said, Tully, you want to be wherever I am. I'm just about to leave the universe. And if you want to go where I go, you have to leave too. And since I was the only one who really understood this total dynamic, I would, by default, have to become the instrument of his demise. So I took it on. I bought into it 100%. As they say in, in poker, I was all in. So we got on the mat, and Tully came at me, but in my deliberate thinking, by the way, I was extremely calm. It's really weird. My fear had vanished. I was extremely calm, and I stepped aside and got him in a headlock, only to discover that he had this metal chain with a dog tag on it, which I quickly seized and used it to begin to choke him, strangle him to death. That was my thought. I said, okay, Tully, you first, me second. And the coach at some point saw this happening, and he ran over and broke it up. That was a strange event altogether. Did, did this idea of where the coach essentially allowed this combat situation change things for you, make it easier during that year? That, no way. No, it made it no worse. Way. See, the coach, well, you know, you look at it from his perspective. He's an ex-military guy. He's probably bought into this notion that violence is the answer to every question. That, unfortunately, is how we are in this country. We adore violence. We embrace it fully, wholly. And it's problematic. I just read this morning, or heard this morning, about a young fifth grader in South Carolina who got killed in a school fight. She and another kid were fighting. She winds up dead. I'm thinking, how can that possibly happen? And yet I know how it happens because we, we embrace violence to the nth degree. It's interesting you brought this up to the future because in your book, I, I wrote down some words. It's near the end. And it says, I write not as someone who wishes to live in the past, but as someone who wishes to understand how the past is manifest today. 
Mm. And so that's where I'd like to go right now, which is we are in extraordinary times in terms of what's happening politically, um, in terms of where we are in discussions of race. It feels like we're going backwards on so many levels, the discord that's happening politically. And so I'd love your reflections because you had this unique point of view that you have lived through this time period that, you know, I studied, my friend, a lot of people have studied. And when learning about it, you know, in my childhood, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened and it shouldn't happen. And yet in other ways, you know, and I go to court and fight for people and I still can't, Sometimes I'm naive, you know, a client comes in with a case and I think, oh my gosh, I can't believe that's happening. And yet, of course I know it because I'm a criminal defense lawyer or I've handled some civil rights cases and I know that people are discriminated against. Right. Well, But what do you think about today and what from the past could help us now? Well, I contend always that unless we have a true understanding of our own past, there's no way on earth we can understand what's happening today. And our past literally has been unexamined in the main. Average person knows very little about who we have been. But we have to do it. Each of us is born into this drama we call life. And one of the essential learning points is to figure out who we are in the context of the past. Because as we're born, all of these forces are swirling around us things that are economical and philosophical and religious and scientific, just like planets in an orbit, you know, running around. And they impact us. They bounce off us. And we are, at that point, learning. We don't know, essentially, what we're learning early on because we don't have the words for it. We soak it up, however. The past is always there. Now, our past, if it were to be examined, would tell us the truth about who we are. We don't accept the truth, literally, about who we are. We package something else. I call it the national narrative. It's a fairly smooth, it's been worked on for so long, it has no splinters whatsoever. You know, it sounds good, but it's all lies. So, for instance, if you go back in time to the year 1619, what you'll discover is there's a shipload of people from Africa who come here, and they began a process of free labor. Now, eventually, that whole enterprise evolves into something we call the institution of slavery. That takes root, and that becomes legal, and that goes off like a rocket, because economically, it's a boon. During the time of slavery, most of the millionaires in the world lived in the state of Mississippi. Now, that's significant. I bet not many people on the street would know that. But then when you look at the impact of what went on, because this happened with legal and constitutional support, this doesn't change until 1954. That's a long time. And by change, I mean in terms of the law. Now, unfortunately, even though the law changed, nothing else changed with it. Things social and cultural and emotional, all those things remained in place. And so you have a situation where for 335 years, and that's the number of years between 1619 and 1954, you figure if you do that for that many years, you really become good at it. I remember recently reading something in Malcolm Gladwell, I think it was in Outliers, where he talked about requiring 10,000 hours to achieve excellence in anything. 
if you practice for 10,000 hours, you'll no doubt achieve levels of excellence. I thought to myself, how many 10,000-hour periods must there be in 335 years? I did the math, and I came up with the number 296. And in mathematical terminology, that means that we, the people of these United States of America, are practiced in the art of discrimination to the 296th power. Wow. That's overwhelming. That's very overwhelming. But then when, when, when you put it this way. When it's... you think about that, what are we going to do moving forward if we don't really take a look back to see who we have been and make a basic decision, is this who we want to continue to be? Now, so far, even without looking back, the answer has been, let's continue the status quo. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand how we got to this status quo. And whether it has merit or not is not the issue in the minds of most people. They simply know it as life. This is how we are. This is who we've always been. And literally, I hear that in the speech of some people. They say, this is how it should be done, because we've always done it this way. That's a poor way of doing life, if you ask me. So as I get to our final thoughts, because this time goes by so quickly, I could keep you here for hours, but that may be the case. We'll have to have you back next time you're in Atlanta. But what kind of advice can you give to, you know, you were a student. I want to go back to that time, you know, when you're 15 years old, to a parent of a 15-year-old or if a young person's living and listening to this podcast. What advice can you give them to make a shift, to make an adjustment? Well, I Where would, should we go? I would probably say to all young people, the same thing I said to our two daughters, my wife and I have two daughters. Often I get the question, at what age should kids really know the truth about who we are? And I'd say, well, how old is the child? And whatever that age is, that's where you start. My own kids, the conversation started in utero. I got permission from my wife to speak through the membranes I wanted these kids to hear my voice, and I wanted them to know that they had a task. The moment they arrived here as developed humans, even though they didn't have the power of speech, they couldn't even walk, couldn't even do anything, they were still charged with this responsibility to learn what part they were going to play in this great drama of life. In order to do that, they needed to know everything that has happened. So I helped them to begin their own process of inquiry, find out. I didn't even um, permit myself to give them what they needed to know because they need to have that experience of learning it, so to make it really personal. I think kids need that. Kids need that. And we do them a disservice if we don't help them understand that process. What we do in many cases is simply to tell them what we think they need to know, which is very limiting because we don't know much. We know what we know, but it is so very pathetically little the storehouse of ignorance we carry around is profound. All of us need to recommit to learning. And this is something I would share with kids too. In fact, when I talk to school kids, I tell them that their assignment for life is to read one additional book per week. And that using that term ignorance, the dichotomy that in the law, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Ignorance of the past is no excuse. I love that. It goes together. Exactly. The past and the law. And so with that, I cannot thank you enough. This is one of the most delightful conversations, not because it's a light subject, but uh, the honesty, and I wish people could see you right now and just eye to eye, um, the depth, 
the passion, the caring that you've shared, and that I have a feeling you share every time you sit down and talk about this or anything else that you're passionate about, um, is very touching. Oh, thank you. And as with every episode, we enjoy a cup of tea. And I selected this tea um, for a particular ingredient, which has chicory in it. And in on a spiritual realm, chicory is about strength, the opening of locks, the removal of obstacles. Wow. Here's to chicory. Here's to chicory. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire. <laughs>